0: Welcome to the brand new Talk Motoring Podcast. I'm Elliot Spateri and over the next few weeks we'll be taking a look at the impact of cars arriving in 2018 at the Motor Show and also at the showroom. We'll also be discussing the motoring news that will be affecting you, the driver. But let's start small and get bigger as we mean to get on by taking a look at the new 2021 Baby Mini SUV. Mini will take advantage of the continuing SUV boom by launching a smaller sister car to the countryman. The new model won't join the range until 2021 at the earliest, making use of the brand's next generation of chassis technology. And that means electric power will be given for the new small SUV. According to a source close to MINI, the new model is likely to be similar in footprint to today's five-door car. But another MINI SUV larger than today's Countryman has been ruled out. Work is already underway on a new platform that would underpin the next generation of MINIs, including the small SUV and, eventually, a replacement for the recently launched Countryman, at the moment, MINI has two platforms at its disposal, the UK L1, which underpins the MINI in three- and five-door form, as well as the convertible, and UK L2, which is used for the Clubman and countrymen, including a plug-in hybrid version of the latter. The all-electric MINI, due to go on sale in 2019 and previewed by the MINI electric concept unveiled at this year's Frankfurt Motor Show, will make use of a modified version of the UK L1 platform. However, the new chassis will be developed from the start with electrification at its core. BMW's global sales and marketing boss, Ian Robertson, has hinted previously that MINI could eventually become an all-electric brand, and the new platform will be key to the company's electrified future. The new small MINI SUV is likely to measure a little over 4 metres in length, putting it up against rivals such as Volkswagen's forthcoming T-Cross SUV, as well as established players such as the Nissan Duke. The look of the new car will be traditional MINI as you'd expect, and is likely to feature some of the details shown on the MINI electric concept. And while MINI has confirmed that the brand will go no larger than the countryman, it has also stated that it won't build a smaller car than today's three-door model. Even with a new platform, insiders have said that it will not be economically viable to make a smaller car, like the well-received Rocketman concept back in 2011. Costs for the new platform are likely to be shared across the BMW group, as it's expected to be used for the next generation of front-wheel drive X1, 1-series and 2-series models and possibly even a replacement for the all-electric i3. Well, the weather may be cold, but let's go for something exotic. We can dream. The McLaren Senna is the successor to the P1, borrowing its name from the legendary Formula One racer. McLaren has pulled the covers off the second Ultimate Series model, a lightweight track-focused hypercar called the Senna, with extreme aero-optimised bodywork, a stripped-back cabin, and a 789 brake horsepower, twin-turbo V8, it's said to give, quote, the most intense circuit experience of any road McLaren, unquote. Named after three-time Formula One world champion Ayrton Senna, McLaren says a portion of the car's profits will go to the foundation set up in his name. All 500 examples have already been sold, at a whopping price of £750,000, including taxes. The Senna isn't a direct replacement for the McLaren P1, but will sit alongside the forthcoming three-seat BP23 in the Ultimate Series range. Vehicle Line Director Andy Palmer says that the brief given to the engineers was to make it as fast as we possibly can going around a track, but also make it road legal. Palmer also describes it as the lightest, fastest, most engaging McLaren yet. The body is made entirely of carbon fibre and has been designed for an optimal blend of aerodynamic efficiency and downforce. Crafted in a teardrop shape, it features huge gullies and louvres in the side to channel air down and over the car, plus a number of cooling vents to feed the car's multiple radiators. The centre also gets two-piece glass windows and a glass insert for the lower half of the dihedral doors that can be specified to increase on-track visibility. At the back, three exhausts sit up high and flush with the bodywork, while an enormous carbon rear wing is mounted on pylons, which rise above it and attach to the top increasing the surface area on the bottom of the wing. Much of the car's mechanical elements are visible from the back thanks to a giant double diffuser which can increase in height to boost downforce. But that's only the start of the active aero tech found on the center. That rear wing is hydraulic and like many McLarens it tilts and adjusts to balance downforce and aero while also acting as an air brake under heavy braking. Front aero tech also features movable flaps hidden in the air intakes directing cool air where it is required. Inside, the center is as minimalist as a modern McLaren gets. Items such as the door handles, window switches and engine start button have been placed on the roof. While the pared back dashboard design features only the essentials. There are two double layer carbon bucket seats with foam padding which slide back and forth with the gear selector panel for better ergonomics. Despite the cluster free approach, McLaren's infotainment system is mounted on a freestanding panel and the sliding digital instrument cluster is lifted straight from the 720S. The only luggage area to speak of is a space behind the driver's head, specifically designed for two helmets. Weighing just 1,198 kilograms, which is roughly about the same as a Ford Focus, the centre has a power-to-weight ratio of 658 BHPs to the tonne. Now that's actually better than the P1, and partly due to a new type of super-light carbon tech that the Woking-based carmaker has developed it means the dihedral door frame weighs just 8.8 kilograms that's about 9 bags of sugar and the carbon tub is 15 kilograms lighter than the P1 at 75 kilograms the 4-litre twin-turbo V8 is mated to a 7-speed dual-clutch transmission producing 789 brake horsepower and 800 newton-metres of torque those figures make it the most powerful road-legal McLaren ever built performance figures and potentially lap time data will be released at a later date the latter is more important for the Senna, according to McLaren, but we can expect an 0-62 time of less than 3 seconds and a top speed of at least 200mph regardless. The Senna chassis is based on McLaren's Race Active Chassis Control 2 system, which uses a double wishbone suspension setup with hydraulic adaptive dampers and anti-roll bars. The variable stiffness and ride is said to be further developed over the 720S and P1, It adds a race mode to the usual comfort, sport and track settings, making the center even stiffer, while also dropping the body even lower to the ground. McLaren claims the Senna's braking system is the most advanced it has ever made for the road. New carbon ceramic brakes with a special CCMR compound feature, and each takes seven months to produce. They have a far greater thermal efficiency than traditional carbon ceramics, however. Bespoke Pirelli P0 Trofeo tyres are standard, with a tread that is road-legal, but primarily designed for track use. Although all examples have been allocated to buyers, the first public debut of the Senna will be at next year's Geneva Motor Show, which will take place in March, and of course we will bring you up to date with all the news from that. The next generation 911 from Porsche, spotted undergoing initial testing, features a fresh new interior. The next generation Porsche 911 has been spied once again, and this time undergoing testing in Germany, and utilising a digitised cabin. The 8th incarnation of the 911 sports car has already been spotted, this year conducting winter testing, and before that, shots from the US revealed a slight glimpse of Porsche's digitised instruments. The latest spy shots from Germany, though, are much clearer. You can see the cockpit of the 8th generation 911 that is set to feature a digital speedo on the left side of the instrument display, with the right dial featuring a readout relevant car information, such as engine status, oil temperature, and in this instance some type of warning for the driver. The only analogue dial that remains is the central rev counter. It's a similar setup to that found in the new Panamera. The bumper at the back is plucked from a 911 turbo and it also gets that car's quad exhaust tip setup while a new full-length LED lighting strip now features at the rear end. Other new design cues are a little bit difficult to spot with the disguise but the spy shots suggest that the next 911 won't undergo a dramatic redesign exactly as we'd expect. Conventional wisdom also suggests Porsche is plotting a wider track for its next 911, increasing stability for the better handling and driving dynamics. But it also hints at the potential for hybrid technology. Wider track may be necessary in order to accommodate a hybrid drivetrain. Porsche already has its fingers in the hybrid pie and has has confirmed its commitment to electric technology, given the Mission E, which is Porsche's all-electric concept car, from the 2015 Frankfurt Motor Show which will reach production. Hybridizing the 911 means that it will be much more economical and will reduce CO2 emissions but it will still be a performance-oriented model and will likely stick with a six-cylinder engine. The current generation 911 has some life in it yet given it received extensive changes in 2015's 991.2 update and it's assumed that Porsche still has some new 991 models up its sleeve As such, there's still a good few years, at least, until the hybrid 911 arrives. Alongside the recent sightings of the 911 Coupe, the inevitable cabriolet version has now been caught on camera. Again, the mule suggests a light evolution of the 911's looks is on the cards, alongside the wider hips to accommodate the car's upcoming wider track. It still wears a mishmash of what appears to be current generation body parts and bumpers, but it's possible to pick out a long, thin LED light spanning the rear of the car and joining the two light clusters. One of the biggest talking points in the motoring world from the last couple of weeks has been the arrival of the new Lamborghini Urus, which is set to arrive in the UK in spring, boasting a 3.6 second 0 to 62 sprint time and a 190 mph top speed, handy if the kids are going to be late for school. The all-new Lamborghini Urus has finally been revealed ahead of the car's controversial launch in 2018. The Italian carmaker claims the Eurus is the world's first super SUV and will arrive in the UK in spring, priced from around £165,000. Lamborghini says the Urus, named after a large Spanish fighting bull, is the new segment benchmark with regards to power, performance and driving dynamics, while also mixing a dose of design, luxury and daily usability. It's said to represent the infusion of Lamborghini DNA into an SUV body, Its unmistakable styling means it will be instantly recognisable on the road and while the looks won't be to all tastes, it has to be said, its sharp creases, deep cuts and swooping roofline give it a completely unique design. Wheel options range from 21 to 23 inches and can even be fitted with specially developed Pirelli all season or winter tyres. Its gaping grille, thin LED headlights and hurricane inspired tail lamps are typically Lamborghini but the raised ride height and angular wheel arches take the brand in a new direction. At the rear, you'll notice the thin coupe-like window line and bold quad-exit exhausts. The Urus is based on the same MLB Evo platform as the Audi Q7, but despite its humble origins, Lamborghini says it's likely to be rather more exceptional when it comes to performance and handling. It uses 641 bhp, 4-liter twin-turbo V8 which develops 850 Newton meters of torque. It's driven through an 8-speed automatic gearbox and complex all-wheel drive system featuring active torque vectoring and four-wheel steering. The Eurus also gets carbon ceramic brakes, adaptive air suspension and active roll stabilisation. As well as completing the benchmark 0-62 sprint in 3.6 seconds, Lamborghini claims the Eurus will do 0-124 in 12.8 seconds and hit 190 flat out. The 8-speed automatic gearbox is tuned for shorter ratios in low gears, ensuring maximum performance from a standstill. Despite not using a faster dual-clutch setup, the box is said to feature a highly efficient slip-controlled lock-up clutch and specially developed torque converter for urgent response. The four-wheel drive system sends 60% of its torque to the rear wheels in normal driving but can instantly force up to 70% to the front wheels to boost traction. Equally, it can send 87% of the car's engine torque to the rear if necessary. A range of driving modes including Strada, Sport, Corsa, Terra, off-road, Neve, for snow, and Sabia, for sand, allow the owner to tailor the car's characteristics to suit the situation in hand. Like in other Lamborghini models, there's also a customizable ego setting. Inside there's seating for five, while the dash design echoes the crazy exterior styling. According to Lamborghini, the Urus offers a low but comfortable seating position. With the entire cabin focused around the driver there are two standard fit touch screens with the upper display managing functions like media navigation and phone connectivity the lower screen provides access to the climate control and seat heating while also offering a keyboard for inputting information the system is supported by apple carplay and android auto and bang and Olufsen stereo is on the options list lamborghini is also offering the eurus with a host of driver assistance systems which include autonomous emergency braking a top view camera and even trailer coupling mode. Auto high beam, front and rear parking sensors, and cruise control are all standard fit as well. So has Lamborghini sold its soul by building an SUV, or is the Eurus really a thing of beauty? New car registrations were down 11.2% in November as diesel sales declined, and new car sales fell for the eighth consecutive month in November with registrations down 11.2%. That's according to the latest figures from the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders. The UK new car market continued to decline in November, with 163,541 vehicles registered. This is the 11% downturn on the same month last year, something the SMMT is growing increasingly concerned about. Year-to-date registrations reached 2,388,144 in November, down 5% from last year's record haul. Diesel sales continued to experience a huge decline in November, down by a whopping 30.6% for the month, with petrol sales up by 5%. Alternative fuel registrations, on the other hand, continue to pick up pace in November, with 33.1% rise in registrations. Alternative ve- fuel vehicles now represent 4.7% of the new car market in- here in the UK, while diesel has declined from a 478 market share last year to a 42.2% share this year. A decrease in business registrations hit the sector hard in November. Business registrations fell by 33.6% in November, while fleet sales also dropped by 14.4%. Private registration saw the smallest decline, with a 5.1% drop. SMMT chief executive Mike Hawes has said, An eighth month of decline in the new car market is a major concern. With falling business and consumer confidence exacerbated by ongoing anti-diesel messages from government, diesel remains the right choice for many drivers not least because of its fuel economy and lower CO2 emissions. The decision to tax the latest low-emission diesels is a step backwards and will only discourage drivers from trading in their older, more polluting cars. Given fleet renewal is the fastest way to improve air quality, penalising the latest, cleanest diesels is counterproductive and will be detrimental to environmental and economic consequences. So what's causing the decline in new car sales in the UK? Well, join the debate and let us know. Though it seems that the government aren't getting things as far as the diesel demonisation debate goes all their own way and they could in fact face a legal challenge. Lawyers looking at misleading diesel incentives as an onslaught of penalties and taxes could be deemed unlawful. Ministerial action to actively incentivise millions of motorists to buy diesel cars and then later penalise them for doing so could be unlawful and leave the government open to a major legal challenge, lawyers have warned. Harker Sinclair the law firm spearheading the current UK-class action suit against the Volkswagen Group over the Dieselgate emissions scandal, says the government has a case to answer over the way consumers have been misled and then punished for buying diesel cars. Damon Parker, a partner at the law firm Harker-Sinclair, said, There is evidence that the previous government promoted diesel car sales on a knowingly false basis. On the basis of the evidence, the government has a case to answer. The tactic of forcing diesel owners to part with their vehicles through financial penalties is, is not only unfairly prejudicial, but may be unlawful and subject to challenge. The revelation comes days after new diesel car tax increases were announced in the autumn budget. Cities like London are clamping down on diesel drivers, having recently introduced the £10 T-charge that applies to older vehicles. Islington Council in London, for example, is also due to introduce £2 higher parking fees for diesel owners in 2018. The dash for diesel began under Tony Blair's Labour government, as ministers focused on lowering carbon dioxide and CO2 emissions to meet the 1997 Kyoto Agreement targets. But they ignored the danger from particulates, which are now blamed for up to 40,000 premature deaths a year. Back in 2001, Labour Chancellor Gordon Brown lowered vehicle excise duty for diesels and reduced the duty paid on diesel, which was promoted then as a green fuel. Sales of diesel cars, which in the 90s accounted for 1 in 20 vehicles, soared to the point where today, there are around 12 million diesels on Britain's roads, representing over a third of all cars, and four times as many as in 2000. Parker said, New evidence suggests that the Blair-Brown tax incentives were introduced despite ministers knowing that air quality would decline if diesel sales rose. This, he said, meant diesel buyers were fooled into buying cars they thought were clean and environmentally friendly. Today, the same vehicles successive governments pushed on the back of their environmental qualities are now being hit by additional tax and other deterrents. The most significant cost, however, is likely to be the drop in residual values of these vehicles. Tony Blair's former chief scientist, Sir David King, whose advice helped to introduce the 2001 tax changes, admitted in April this year that scientists were aware that diesel was dirty and belched out harmful particulates and nitrous oxides, but did nothing about it. He admitted he was aware of the warnings, including from the government's own medical advisors in 1999, but suggested he'd been convinced by car makers that new catalytic converters would deal with the problem. Howard Cox of campaign group Fair Fuel UK said it is considering legal action. He says, We believe there is a case for action against the government for misleading drivers and against London Mayor Sadiq Khan over his unfair tea charge. AA President Edmund King has also said that while it's unclear whether a legal challenge could succeed, it's clear the government misled millions of drivers over diesel regardless so do you feel you've been unfairly treated for buying a diesel car well it's certainly a debate we'll be having over the next few weeks as we deliver podcasts here on talk motoring if you'd like to keep uh, up to date or if there's a subject or a comment that you'd like to leave with regard to this podcast then of course you can reach me at elliot on air that's e-l-l-i-o-t-t-o-n-a-i-r reach me on twitter it would be nice to hear from you And we welcome all your feedback here on the Talk Motoring Podcast. Well, listen, I hope you've enjoyed this first edition. It's been a pleasure to bring it to you. Things will be a little bit quiet over Christmas, but there are lots of new cars that are going to be hitting the showrooms and lots of issues to talk about, debate, and also lots of cars to get excited about as well. And we aim to bring them all to you here, along with some car reviews as well in the future, into 2018 here on the Talk Motoring Podcast. So thanks for listening and I hope you can join me again very soon. If we don't speak before, I wish you a very happy Christmas and of course, the very best, New Year into 2018.